Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 163. And it's a continuation of Perry Russo's testimony at the preliminary hearing under oath. And it should be listened to in conjunction with episode 162. In this episode, we present the cross-examination that was conducted by the defense attorney, Irvin Diamond. This is an extremely long episode, a little over an hour and 20 minutes. So you may want to listen to it in chunks if that seems a little overwhelming. As I mentioned in the introduction that began in episode 162, you may want to treat this as a bonus episode. However, if I were you, and you're on the wander with me, I wouldn't miss it. No, I'm just saying. And that's because really, sprinkled throughout the entirety of this cross-examination testimony is a number of very important statements made by Russo. And I think overall, you'll find this episode quite revealing. As a juror, I want you to listen closely because it's an important piece of evidence. It was the first time that Russo was testifying under cross-examination under oath. I don't think it requires any more explanation, so let's just get started and dive right in. And so, without further ado, let's listen to episode 163 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Order in the court. Do you believe in God, Mr. Russo? Sir, I said, do you believe in God? It would depend on the definition. Oh, the definition? How do you define God? I define God as everything, the entity of the universe. You recall yesterday having raised your hand and taken an oath to the effect that all the testimony which you had given in the proceedings would be the truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth? Yes, sir. What was the significance of that oath in accordance with your beliefs? The significance in accordance to my belief, I would be telling the truth to the best I knew it under the penalty of law of the court. I don't understand the law in that particular instance. Would you mean only under penalty of the law and oath or also under penalty of God? As you believe God. I believe God is everything, including the law, all that is good, including the universe, including the earth, the people, you, myself, and everyone here. Would your oath under these circumstances have any relationship to your belief in God? I I do not understand the question. Would you consider your oath a promise to God to tell the truth? 
I consider my oath a promise to myself, which is part of God, and promise everyone in here who are parts of God, and promise everybody that I am telling the truth as best I know it. Would you consider your state of belief in God the conventional belief in God? Or is this one peculiar to you? I don't know what is peculiar to me or not. I have read and discussed this with many priests at Loyola concerning different conceptions of God, early conception and historical conceptions, and the idea of the Christian God and the Muhammad and things like that. I don't know if mine is more peculiar than anyone else. You don't know that yours are any more peculiar than anybody else? Do you go to church on occasions? On what occasions? The occasion that I feel that I need to talk out whatever I am thinking about at that particular time. Talk it out with whom? I sometimes talk to ministers. I talk to priests, and I have not yet had occasion to talk to a rabbi. I talk to someone that is willing to listen. I like to do it in the confines of a church or sanctuary of it. Like the sanctuary of the quietness of the confines of the church? That would be adequate. Yes, sir. Would you feel that you had committed a sin in the eyes of God if you took an oath and testified to the truth and then testified falsely? I am referring to your God as you believe it. I believe that the truth should be spoken, and I believe that it would be against mankind, which is God, and certain portions of God, it would be against mankind as well, against myself and everyone else. Would you consider it a sin in the eyes of God? In God that I believe in, I have never really conceptualized his mind or any sort of relationship in that instance, in that respect. In other words, your oath would have very little relationship to your belief in any God at all. Now, Mr. Diamond, you are saying that, and I don't think I said that. Well, just answer the question. What is the question? Uh, now, let the record show that the court reporter reread the question at this point. I don't understand the question. And at this point, Judge Baggert would uh, chime in and say, I don't understand it either. Your Honor, I think it's just about as clear as this witness's conception of God is. Judge Baggert would remind Mr. Diamond that this is not a catechism class and that he would need to move on with the case. At this point, we removed a rather lengthy section of questioning by the defense attorneys about Perry's family including an account of his brothers and sisters, whether his parents divorced or whether remarried and a host of related questions, and his ownership and a piece of property that he inherited and in related support to his grandmother and his filling out of his W-2 and whether he gave support to other people and then claimed them, again, namely his grandmother on his tax return, which he did not, by the way. These were all ways for the defense to attack the credibility of his character. And Russo did a very nice job in the cross-examination on these topics. So much so that the defense then had to turn to an uglier form of character assassination. To delve into Russo's medical psychiatric history. And that's next.
we'll turn to that now. Russo, have you ever been under psychiatric treatment? Yes, sir. When and for how long? Between 1959 and the middle of 1960 or late 1960. For approximately how many months would you say? The treatment and the consultations, which we discussed, things covered perhaps maybe two years or a year and a half. Maybe a year and a half or two years? Yes, sir. And you say they commenced approximately when? 1959, I, I think. 1959? Yes, sir. What about part of 1959? In October. About October of 1959? I feel that is the case. And they terminated approximately when? The last time I saw the doctor and when the consultations terminated are two different things. Well, tell us about each, if you will. Well, the consultations, as a consequence, ended approximately 1960 or, or 1961, right in that area, late 1960 or early 1961. What other visits with a psychiatrist are you talking about after the termination of the consultations? Well, I had occasion to go back when my mother died, and I visited him on circumstances such as that. But there was no consultation, you know, on a regulated basis. In other words, whenever you were under any great stress or anything of that nature, you went back to the psychiatrist. Is that right? No, I would not evaluate it as such. Well, how would you evaluate it? When I thought I wanted to talk about previous things that had gone on in my past and which he knew about and circumstances and situations which were personal to me, then I felt the best man to go to is the man that knew it and not have to go through five years of talk and finally get somebody to understand the situation. Now, when you say upon the occasion of your mother, the death of your mother, the death of your mother was the last such visit, would you say? No, I don't think. I may have gone subsequent to that. To the best of your recollection, when would be the last time you went? I, I don't expect you to be exact here, just your recollection. The last time I can remember going was around October of 1965 or, or September, maybe. October or September of 1965, you said. I'm guessing that. Would you be able to say with confidence that you have not consulted with a psychiatrist during the year 1966? Unless I've given it some serious thought and put him in the right context, I, I am not willing to say whether I would do that. You would not be able to say that? I have talked to him on the phone. Now, whether it was in 1966, 1965... Or any other years, I'm not sure. Get into the current year, 1967, Mr. Russo. Can you state with absolute confidence and positiveness that you have not consulted with a psychiatrist during the year of 1967? Now, first of all, let me ask a question so I can clarify something. You are referring to the psychiatrist of 1959 to 1961? Any I have talked to many doctors at LSU. I'm not referring to mere social conversations. I'm talking about consulting with a psychiatrist for the purpose of which a psychiatrist would ordinarily serve an individual. Well, may I add that we talked about social things and also talked about personal things. 
Where is the line of demarcation? Were you using him as a psychiatrist when you spoke with him, or were you conversing with him as a friend only? I make it no habit to use anyone in that reference. I said, were you conversing with him as a friend, or were you conversing with him as a psychiatrist? I was conversing with him as a friend. In other words, during the year of 1967, you have had no professional conversations with a psychiatrist. Is that right? And are you stating that positively? Yes, sir. I understand that you attended McDonough High School. Is that correct? Yes. During what years? 1956 to 1959. 1956 to 1959? Yes, sir. At that time, did you know James Ferry? I, I mean to say David Ferry. No, I didn't think I did. I, perhaps I did late 1959, but I didn't think so. Would you have known him while you were still in a high school student? You know, can you tie it in that way? No, I cannot really tie it in that way. What was the first time you ever knew David Ferry? It was through a friend of mine. I said when? Approximately 1960 or 1961. What was that friend's name? Al Landry. Mal Landry, is it not a fact that you were threatened with expulsion from McDonough for making a public statement that you do not believe in God? I was never threatened with expulsion from McDonough High School. Did you have any difficulties with the faculty over such public statements? From my side of the picture, no. What do you mean by your side of the picture? I would think that the faculty at McDonough could testify better to that. I'm asking whether, to your knowledge, you had any difficulty with the faculty at McDonough over such an alleged statement. I had discussions. You had discussions with them? Yes, sir. Were you accused of having made such public statements? Accused by whom? Accused by anybody. May I ask a question? I do not understand the question. That is it. <laughs> you don't understand the question? No, sir. I said... Were you accused by anyone during your years of attendance at McDonough High School of having made the statement that you do not believe in God? I may have. I don't recollect. Mr. Russo, are you telling me that you would not remember something like that? And my interest was limited at that time. I had many things on my mind. One of them was high school studies, and another was baseball. Would you deny that you were accused of such statements? I would not deny it either. Then you would not admit it either, would you? No, sir. You graduated from McDonough, didn't you? Yes, sir. When was that? June or May of 1959. Where were you living at that time? On Elysian Fields. Oh, were you when you graduated? Probably 18. Where did you matriculate upon your graduation from McDonough? I entered Tulane. Tulane University? Yes, sir. What was that in? The College of Arts and Science or what? I entered into the College of Arts and Science as far as I can remember. How long did you testify you had attended Tulane? Two years. What two years would those have been? First two, 1959 to 60 and then 60 to 61. Among the student body at Tulane University, did you have anybody 
any particular close friends. I had many friends. At Tulane? Yes, sir. Would you, to the best of your ability, name a few of those? Ronald N. Quinn, who is a lawyer, and Jess Schoendalt, who is a doctor. I had others. If I was allowed some time, I could think of them. Are you telling us at this time that you cannot think of any other friends except the two you had named? I had, to me, what was a lot of friends. I always wanted people around. I, I like people. At Tulane, it was the same situation. Are you unable to say anymore at this time that I would consider close friends? I am unable to do so. So you had only two. I did not say that. At this point, there was somewhat of an objection by the prosecution and uh, a little haggling, which we won't get into. Back to Irvin Diamond. When was the occasion for you leaving Tulane University? Well, in September of 1961, my father told me I was going to Loyola. Your father told you that you were going to Loyola? Yes, sir. As a student at Tulane, were you ever accused of giving false testimony in any hearing or proceeding? Proceeding there? I have never been accused of giving false testimony. You never have been. So, after leaving Loyola, at least leaving Tulane, after two years at Tulane, you then matriculated to Loyola. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Was that an immediate transfer or was there any lapse of time in between? It was the next semester, excluding the summer. In other words, after summer vacation, you checked into Loyola. Yes, sir. Was that in the arts and science department of Loyola that you matriculated? My degree was in social studies. I'm not sure whether it was arts and science at Loyola. Did you take a course in political science there? That was my major. Now, during the time you attended Tulane University, were you acquainted with Dave Ferry? While I was at Tulane? Yes, sir. Would you tell us what relationship to your matriculation at Tulane when you met David Ferry? I do not remember the month. Was it shortly after you matriculated during, say, your first four or five months at Tulane, or was it later than that? The very beginning of my association with Dave Ferry, the first time I met him, or the first couple of times, are, are vague in relationship to the time elements, such as school and whatever else. Could you go so far and tell whether it was in your first or second year at Tulane that you met him? I would say around 1960. Would that have been in your first or second year at Tulane? Uh, that would have been both. Therefore, you knowing him would have commenced in your first year at Tulane. Perhaps the second year in 1960. Who did you say introduced you to Ferry? I met him through a common acquaintance. What was his name? Al Landry. Does Al Landry live here in New Orleans at this time, if you know? Yes, sir. Do you know where he lives? I know the house. Well, what street is it? I don't know the street. What area of the city? In Gentilly. Does he live by himself or with his parents, or is he married? He lives with his parents. Do you know his father's name? Not the first name, no. And you don't know what street it's on? No, sir. Where did this introduction of Ferry take place? 
As I told Mr. Garrison yesterday, Al had talked about Ferry and many times over and over and had built up his character and his prestige and stature, so to speak, and he asked me if I wanted to go see him. And I, for one reason or another, I turned him down, mainly because of school and books and studying, and I asked you if you wanted to go see him. Well, Al asked if I wanted to go meet this friend of his, and I said yes, but maybe another time, maybe tomorrow or next week, always putting him off. Al and I and my cousins and everyone played baseball and basketball around Corjezu High School, and what is your cousin's name? The prosecution would intervene here, saying the witness has not completed his answer, and Diamond is asking him another question. And the judge would say, just let him finish his answer. And we played basketball around Corjezu and baseball around Corjezu, and late at night, 7 o'clock, we would go to Tulane and, and play and sometimes play basketball there. I went over to Seattle one night to meet him, and I talked to his parents either the same night or the next night when I came to get him because we were going to Tulane. And then I talked to Mrs. Landry, and she told me that he had run away from the house. And at that time, they told me about Dave Ferry, and I got involved. At that time, they told you. Who told you that? Mr. and Mrs. Landry. Who is this cousin of yours you, you made reference to? Well, I have 10 or 12 cousins. It was different cousins that came and played basketball. Okay, you say you had 10 or 12 cousins that went and played basketball. Well, not at one time. I'm talking about around the time you met David Ferry. It would have been either Gerald Kirchenstein, George Kirchenstein, Timmy Kirchenstein, and even their sister, perhaps, but in a light, friendly game. And you say your friend's parents told you about Ferry, and that is when you got involved? The mother was upset about Al. So where did you first meet Ferry? Well, I told Mrs. Landry, I said, if Dave wants to go, don't fight him. I said, let him go. If anyone can alienate Al from Dave, I told Mrs. Landry that I could. I felt I could. I said, because Al always came over during the day and sometimes at night, and we would go play baseball and, and basketball or go listen to Frogman play music. That's uh, Clarence Frogman Henry. And so I said, if he wants to run, I will keep in touch with you and let you know what he tells me. And I said, it has to be in strictest of confidence. And she said, okay. And a few days later, or maybe a week later, Al came over and I was home. He may have come over before that, but I was home and he invited me to his place in Kenner, to Dave's place in Kenner. And I take it you accepted the invitation and went out there? Yes, sir. Various conversations ensued, and we're going to pick it up at a point where they're talking about other friends of Perry Russo's that went out to Dave Ferry's. This Pete, or left of Peterson, is he a local man? Yes, sir. Does he still live in New Orleans? Yes, sir. Where does he live? He moves about, and I'm just not sure right now. When is the last time you've seen him? I, I've seen him here on a couple of occasions. Have you seen him up here in connection with this case? Not inside the trial, but in Mr. Garrison's office. In other words, he's been interviewed by the district attorney's office. 
I would prefer that you ask them that. Do you know where he is living at present? No, sir. So you and your cousin, Adele Marcotte, and Lefty Peterson went up there to Dave Ferris' house in whose automobile? That uh, could have been mine. I'm not sure of that. What kind of car was it? Yeah, if it was mine, it would have been a 59 Plymouth. Can you give us any other possibility as to whose car it might have been? Lefty had access to transportation at work. I have a vague recollection he had a car at that time. Do you recall what kind it was? A 49 or 50 Ford. A 49 or 50 Ford? Yes, sir. Would you feel safe in saying that you went out there either in your car or Lefty's car? I would not be willing to say. Now, when you arrived at Ferry's house out in the Kenna area, who was there? A bunch of boys whom I had never met, and Dave and his mother. Approximately how many boys? I don't know, maybe 10 or 12. 10 or 12? Yes. Do you remember any of their names? Some of the first names. We're going to pause the discussion there and then fast forward it after a recess to when Russo got back on the stand and began to be questioned again by Mr. Diamond. Russo, in your testimony before the recess, you stated that Dave Farrow was spectacular. Would you please tell us what you meant by that? Well, when he talked to everyone or when he talked to me, he made great claims of things he had done in the past or was doing now. And he was just now, I would argue with him in certain circumstances, and I would say, well, I have read something before, and I said, well, that does not go to what I read. And he would cite me chapter and verse of a book. And he would say, go down to the library and look up the 1947 edition of Rossler's Manual or something like that. Well, I got to the point where I did not challenge him on anything. Everything that I knew, he knew too. I felt, and he seemed to be extremely smart. And things he did was spectacular in nature. He could either talk a big game or play a big game. This is the characteristic you're talking about when you referred that he was spectacular. Is that right? Neither in word or fact. I'll show you a photograph which has been marked for identification in the state as Exhibit S1. And I ask you whether you recognize this photograph, and if so, who's in it? Yes, sir. That is Leon Oswald. Is that the man to whom you referred in your testimony? Yes, sir. I now show you another photograph marked for identification as State 10. And I ask you to identify that photograph. That is Dave Ferry. The same Dave Ferry to whom you have referred in your testimony. Is that right? Yes, sir. I now show you a reproduction of a photograph marked for identification as State 2. And I ask you whether you are to identify that photograph. This photograph I can identify. Is that the one appearing on the left? Yes, sir. And what would you identify in that photograph? It was the same photograph I was shown earlier by Mr. Garrison. Do you recognize the parties in that photograph? I recognize one person. As whom? The middleman as Leon Oswald. Is that the same Oswald you have testified you knew here in New Orleans? Yes, sir. 
Referring to the photograph on the right-hand side of this reproduction, I ask you whether you are able to identify the name of the parties in that photograph. It looks to me as the same people in the left photograph. It does? Yes, sir. Which one would you say in the right-hand photograph is Leon Oswald? In this photograph? The right-hand photograph, yes. At the time of the assassination, this is a picture I saw as Leon Oswald. Yes, sir. I would not identify any of them as Leon Oswald. What would you identify any of them as if you are able to identify any of them? I have seen that picture before. Detectives, and this is Lee Harvey Oswald, and, and I'm not sure, but I think this is Jack Ruby. And I don't know who the man is behind him. Now, the man whom you have identified in the center of the right-hand photograph as Lee Harvey Oswald, would you identify him as the same Oswald to whom you had referred in your testimony? Not from the right photograph, no. You would not? No, sir. You mean that you could not recognize him from that? Well, that is a photograph I saw in New Orleans, and I think the one on television. I'm not sure, but there are similarities. Yes, sir. But I will not go out on the limb. No, sir. What do you mean you're not going to go out on the limb? What do you mean by that expression? Well, at that time, I had a lot of other things on my mind. One of them was school. It was my senior year, and my mother had died the same year. And, and school was, at that time, it was my last year, and I had certain hours I had to get in. Otherwise, I would not be able to graduate. There had been some involvement with the estate earlier during the year, and that left me with a cold hand in any involvement in anything. And then later, later on during the year when this all happened, of course, I was shocked by President Kennedy's death, and I thought about it, and I said, maybe. Maybe not. In other words, I was involved at home, and at that time, at this point, Judge O'Hara from the three-judge panel intervened and said this. He wants to know, what do you mean by what do you interpret? What is your interpretation of the expression going out on a limb? What does that mean? Excuse me, I, I misunderstood the question. I am not going out on a limb. All I mean is that at that time, from that picture, the one I saw in the newspaper, I said that could or could not be, and I was just not willing to say it was the same man. When was the first time after the assassination of President Kennedy that you first saw a picture of the man alleged to have assassinated President Kennedy? I don't recall. You are aware of the fact that a picture of such a man appeared on television regularly right after the assassination, are you not? Yes, sir. Would you say that you, in the normal course of events, watched television after such a national tragedy as that? Oh, I'm sure I did, yes, sir. Therefore, you would not deny that very shortly after President Kennedy was assassinated that you saw on television a picture of the alleged assassin, would you? No, sir. Did you recognize him? The alleged assassin and the man I know, is that what you are referring to? 
Did you recognize the alleged assassin as the man whom you had known? I gave it thought and said it was possibly the man. And I said, I'm not sure at that time. And then I got involved with other things. It looked very much like him, didn't it? Well, from the first photograph, it didn't. The photograph that you showed me on the right-hand side. I'm talking about on television after the assassination. Didn't the television pictures look like him? That is the first photograph I saw of Oswald. Was that one? Mr. Witness, I'm talking about photographs now. I'm asking you whether, upon seeing on television, subsequent to the assassination, the picture of the alleged assassin, did you recognize that alleged assassin as the same Oswald whom you say you knew here in New Orleans? To myself, I said I was not definite. It was probably the same man. It might not have been. They had different names. Well, they both had the same last name, didn't they? They had different names to me. Did they or did they not both have the same last name? Both had the name Oswald, yes. And it is your testimony now that you could not recognize any of the pictures of Oswald that you saw on television as being the same man whom you knew as Oswald in New Orleans. It is my testimony that I saw the pictures, which you are saying, or at least one of them at that time. And I obviously probably looked at television. I'm sure I did. To what pictures I saw on there, I don't know. It crossed my mind that they were one and the same. And I thought about it. And I gave it some serious thought. Then Oswald was shot. And at that time, when he was shot, everybody on television said Oswald was the only man. They found the gun. The FBI was on television, or that was my recollection. What was on television and radio and stuff, and they said Oswald had done it, the only man to do it. And so I said, all right with me. By what first name did you know the Oswald that you knew here in New Orleans? Leon, what was the first name of the man who was put on television as the assassin of President Kennedy? Lee Harvey, did the similarities between the name Leon and Lee strike you or interest you? The names didn't, no. The Oswald name did, of course, and the first name didn't. I was trying to put it together and say yes or no to myself at the time, which I never did do because he was dead. Even putting them together, you could not say you recognized on TV as Lee Harvey Oswald, the same man you had known as Leon Oswald here in New Orleans. Is that right? Definitely no. At the time, I didn't. Then he died. He was shot. And I just let it pass from my mind. I may have made remarks to that effect that I think I knew that guy, something to that effect, to friends that were always around the house. Mr. Russo, you heard the tape played in the courtroom a few minutes ago? Yes. And you were standing here in court, heard the playback of the tape of a television interview between you, Jim Kemp, and Baton Rouge on February 24th, 1967. Did you not hear it? 
Yes, sir. And did you listen carefully to it? Well, I read along on the lady's pad of the, you know, of the conversation, and I followed along. Do you deny, or not deny, it is a true and faithful transcript of what you said on that occasion? Upon close examination, I would accept it. I'll read to you from page two of this transcript. Question, did you ever hear Ferret making a threatening remarks about President Kennedy? Answer, well, during the 63, that was an extensive period of time that I knew him. In 62 and 63, Ferret was obsessed, more or less, with the idea of Kennedy and what he was doing to Cuba, or to Castro, and what Dave Ferret was actually, at any instance, coming over to the house. For one thing, I lived on Elysian Fields in New Orleans, and he would come over at night, you know, uncalled, everything like that, as was his habit, and he would talk. And generally speaking, I was a Republican. I was against Kennedy in general, you know, for policies. And that was opening door, and he could elaborate on the issue quite frequently, and this especially during the summer. And he talked in general terms, and not specifically about Kennedy, how easy it would be to assassinate a president of the United States because of the fact he was in public view so much and unprotected, more or less. And there were so many people and the availability of exit and the fact that he could drive a plane to get out of the country. And he used to just, you know, posingly, jokingly pose the question that, you know, he, he, he and I could do it, you know, just in, a, just in a joking way. He said it could be done. And that was all the conversation during the summer. Now, Mr. Russo, do you deny you said that to Mr. Kemp in Baton Rouge? The essence is about right, not word for word. I don't know. Do you deny that this is, in essence, what you told Mr. Kemp in Baton Rouge? I accept it for what it's worth, yes. Will you tell us why in that interview you said that this was done in a joking way by a fairy? rather than relating the same story which you have related here in the courtroom to the effect that there was an actual plot or scheme or conspiracy for the assassination of Kennedy in which Ferry took place. I understand the reference is being made to summer months as the time by the statement I made there. That is your reference? You called, uh, is that during the summer months period? That's right. Well, Ferry did jokingly say he could assassinate or we would assassinate or a set of people would theoretically could be done very well. I don't make any claims to this minute that there was anything very serious during the summer months except those theoretical discussions, which I view them as. During the month of September, that is another story, a different story altogether. Later on, perhaps during summer, it was during this period of time that things took on a little bit different respect. You don't consider September a summer month? <laughs> no, sir. The summer months are for baseball. At this time, they took a quick recess, and we'll be back in a second with more they would listen to another interview before they would start questioning again. Did you hear the recording played in the court just a few minutes ago? Yes, sir. Did you listen to it carefully? Yes, sir. 
your testimony that this is a true and faithful recording of a television interview between one John Kerbel of Channel 12 WVUE and you here in the front entrance of the Criminal District Court Building on Tulane Avenue on March 1st, 1967. Well, I do not. I cannot attest to who talked to me. It was in front of the court building, and there are some exceptions I have to the transcription. One exception I saw. Well, the interview. Where did the interview take place? On Broad Street, the Broad Street entrance. Of the criminal courts building? Yes, sir. Now, in view of the request of the Council of the State, I will not get into the discrepancy at this time, which you made reference to. You say that you don't know the name of the representative of the television station by whom you were introduced. Is that right? I was never introduced. Is it not a fact that only such an interview was conducted with you at the Broad Street entrance or near the Broad Street entrance of this building? The television interview? I did not consider it an interview. I was walking out of the building and he tried to question me. And, you know, he was doing his job. Have you ever conducted any other conversations over television at the Broad Street entrance of this building on or about March 1st of this year? Not that I remember. No, sir. Now, about any other date, have you had any television interviews at that location? No, sir. Now, the conversation to which you refer with this television station representative, would you say that it took place on March 1st of this year? I would probably agree with that, yes. As a matter of fact, you had just come to the district attorney's office, had you not? Yes, sir. Mr. Russo, did you ever attend Colton Junior High School? Colton Junior High? Yes, sir. During what year was that approximately? I would say around 1955. Did you ever attempt to jump out a window at Colton High School? At this point, the prosecution would object. If the court please, the relevancy is just this. We can show somebody jumping out of a window at a high school and attempted suicide. That certainly has a reflection on the mental stability on that person. I think the mental stability is a vital issue here. The objection by the prosecution was overruled. Did you or did you not attempt to jump out a window at Colton High School? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is that your testimony? Absolutely. Have you at any other time attempted suicide or attempted to take your own life? Absolutely not. Yesterday afternoon before court adjourned, you testified that when you were shown a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald, that you could not identify that photograph as the Leon Oswald you knew, whom you have testified you knew in New Orleans. At this point, there was a conference to eliminate the confusion on which particular photograph they were referring to. Until the photographs had been touched up by placing a bid on the photograph and causing the hair on the photograph to appear to be in a disheveled condition. Isn't that correct? Well, not exactly. Please see fit to make whatever corrections you see fit to make. Can I have the photographs, please? At this point... Russo would look at D24 and D23 and letting the record show that D23 is the untouched up photograph. This picture was shown to me among maybe 
15 or 20 others in Baton Rouge. I recognized him at that time. I said that it looks like Ferry's roommate because that is what the members of the district attorney's office had been questioning about. I did not recognize that as Lee Harvey. And I said, oh, that is the roommate. And then I looked at it and said, that looks like Oswald. Is it? And he said, yes. Why do you say it was his roommate? And then I said that except for the fact that this picture, the one you have now, D23, does not have a slight growth of maybe four or five days or a week or three days of beard, hair messed up, this would be his roommate. Mr. Chambra of the district attorney's office asked me at that moment if I would be willing to come to New Orleans and allow an artist or a member of their staff to help and to see if this was the roommate, that they could draw a picture in and, and by adding to the picture in this instance. As soon as they got this picture, D24, and added light whiskers here, and they messed up his hair, it is unmistakably the same man to me in this picture. But I said that this is positively my idea, you know, this, that this was his roommate. And, and that's all. Is it your testimony you were shown other photographs in Baton Rouge? Yes, sir. Other well, photographs purporting to be photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald? No, sir, it was other people. Were you shown any photographs purported to be photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald? I don't recall, unless there may have been others in there. You do testify, however, that in Baton Rouge you were shown an unaltered photograph D-23. Yes, sir. Upon looking at this photograph, you were not able to state that this was Leon Oswald, as you knew him here in New Orleans. I asked the man after. First, I recognized him as the roommate. He was clean. The roommate was dirty. You say when you saw D-23 in Baton Rouge that you did recognize this as a photograph of the roommate. That is the way Ferry had introduced me. I considered him a vagabond that dropped in, but that is the way Ferry had introduced him. But you did recognize D-23 as the roommate of Ferry. Is that right? Yes, sir. When did that interview to which you made that recognition take place in Baton Rouge? Uh, it was Saturday a after, the same Saturday following my interview on television. I think the interview on television was on the 24th. I'm not sure of that. And it was a day after that, and Mr. Chabra knocked at the house, and he came in, and he asked me questions. Proud of that time that you recognized this photograph, D23, the photograph of the roommate, meaning Leon Oswald, had you not seen either identical or similar pictures in the newspapers labeled Lee Harvey Oswald? Never. Had you not seen pictures on television or any other news media similar to this labeled Lee Harvey Oswald? I had seen maybe three or four different pictures of Oswald in my life. And maybe 100 times or maybe more than that, it was not many different photographs, but the same photographs over and over. That was not one of them that I ever saw. Russo, is it not a fact that after the assassination of President Kennedy and after the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby, the photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald were extremely widely circulated in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, 
in any place that you might have been, by television, newspaper, and other media. I am sure they were. Now, is it your testimony that the photographs which you saw prior to having identified D-23 differed so materially from D-23 that you were not able to recognize them as the roommate? Can I have a clarification of the question, please? Is it your testimony that the publicized photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald, which you saw after the assassination of President Kennedy, differed so materially from D-23 as to render you unable to recognize them as photographs of the roommate, meaning Leon Oswald? Can I elaborate on this? It is very important. I can recall the photographs I saw of Oswald, perhaps three or four. I know. And, and I, at that time, I was not willing to say that was the same man. Because these photographs, and you be the judge of this, I saw one in the paper or TV, I don't remember where, standing up, holding some gun, pistols, something in the center, and somebody had taken it. I saw that picture. I saw one of him being a child. Uh, not a child. It was a baby picture. Okay, at this point, there actually is a page, page 229 missing from the transcript. So we kind of lose the conversation there. We'll pick it right back up with more from Russo. I made remarks to my friends that I think I might have known that guy. The guy I knew was a beatnik. Were you telling your friends the truth when you said that? I think I might know that man. It was during that period of time when you were telling your friends that you think you might know that man. Were you referring to having known him in your own mind as Leon Oswald? I did not think about the name, but I was thinking about the face at the time because they had different names to me. If you thought maybe you knew that man, could you tell us why? In the television interview in Baton Rouge on February 24th, you made the dogmatic statement, no, I have never heard of Oswald until the television of the assassination. Yes, sir, for several reasons. One is, I knew the district attorney's office was at that time in the process of trying to contact me or coming up with something. They were working out the arrangements on that. Two is... I did not want just to say that someone that was not sort of legal, that, that was the same man, and there is, I knew different names. So, so I got off the hook by saying I did not know Lee Harvey Oswald. Before this discussion, in which I am sure Mr. Kemp will agree, we discussed some idea so he would have some areas he could talk about. He said he would not go cold turkey. And I guess last, and, and maybe a big factor, maybe, I, I was scared because this thing was blown out of proportion when I made one remark. All of a sudden, everybody was knocking my house down to get in. I did not want to be harassed. I was worried of my job and, and things like that. Russo, you are an intelligent man. You knew how to get in touch with the Secret Service. You knew how to get in touch with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Warren Commission if you wanted to didn't you? Yes, sir. I, I did not know about the Warren Commission, but the other two I, I, I could have probably gotten hold of. 
Now, would you mind explaining to me why has that doubt in your mind and that suggestion in your mind that these were one and the same man? Why? Between 1963, November of 1963, and March 24th or later, March 1st, 1967, you did not see fit to divulge the fact that there was a possibility that this was one and the same man. Well, very frankly, I was trying to get through school. I I was no authority on anything, and I'm still not. The FBI and people on television said that there was the man. He did it, and he was all alone. At that time, I I was not. I was 22, 23, I don't know, at that time. Just to sit down and going to fight the federal government about anything? I I was just not going to do that. I was just a voice in the wilderness, I thought. Do you know how long it took the Warren Commission to arrive at its conclusion? No, sir. You are aware of the fact that this didn't take place in a couple of days or a week, don't you? Yes, sir. I am aware of that. How can you consider it fighting the federal government? Give them information before they even arrived at their conclusion, if that information was available to you. Because on television and radio, I guess, and and maybe in the papers, FBI agents or someone had arrested Oswald, and he was the only man. I cannot make it any clearer than that. That is the way I felt at that time. If they said it, then it is true. I had no reason to disagree with these people. They are professionals. What made you change your mind about this? When it got a little closer to home, I knew Dave Ferry. The fact you knew Dave Ferry made you change your mind, is that right? If Garrison was saying that Ferry was involved, I might be able to help him and just say I knew Ferry and many of his friends. Mr. Russo, were you aware of the fact that Dave Ferrer was arrested very shortly after the assassination and that newspaper article was published to that effect? No, sir. You did not know of that? No, sir. When did you move away from New Orleans? September of 1965. So you lived here in New Orleans between the date of the assassination and September of 1965. Is that right? Yes, sir. Did you ever have an occasion to see David Ferry after the assassination of President Kennedy? Yes, sir. Did you talk to him about it? Nothing. No mention whatsoever was made about it. No, sir. After the assassination of President Kennedy, for approximately how long did your acquaintance with David Ferry continue? Well, after the assassination, there was a blank space. I did not see him for a while. About how long? I saw him maybe four or five other times after that, maybe seven or eight months later, and he saw me. Is it your testimony that about seven or eight months after the assassination, you did not have an occasion to see David Ferry? Is that right? No, sir. Is that your testimony or not? Sir? You say no, sir. Is that your testimony? Yes, sir. And do I understand correctly that he contacted you after seven or eight months? No, sir. It was actually by accident. I drove into a service station and I saw this man. The same man I had seen before with Dave. Dave said hello to me and I never said anything to him. We were in different cars. I talked to Dave maybe two minutes, three minutes. Now, after the filling station incident on Veterans Highway, did you have any occasion, any further time to see him again? 
I don't recall, but I'm sure I did. Were you and he still visiting back and forth? Generally, when I had vacation. Would you visit his apartment or would he visit your home? After that, I don't recall if I went up there. I'm sure I possibly did. Could you tell us approximately how many times you saw David Ferrer between the time of the assassination and the time of his death? I've already stated that. I just told you. The total number of times, the best you can testify. Maybe four or five, six times. Do you remember any other specific incidents? No, sir. You could not tell us why or approximately when, is that right? It would have been during the summer months, but now where he seemed to me broken after that. I don't know why. I, I cannot say why. He seemed to me to be broken. Now, he talked about the district attorney's office a couple of times. He did talk about the district attorney's office? Yes, sir. What did he say about the district attorney's office? Just general remarks. Like what? Well, he did not like what was going on, and he did not like, he was starting to build up an antagonism that seemed to be a resentment to authority or to police or something. He never got more specific than that. He had been broken. That is the way I looked at it. He was a broken man. Why, I don't know. He was no longer a party goer, so to speak, a spectacular, so to speak. This resentment, he voiced toward the district attorney's office. Would you be more specific about that? He was not specific, no, sir. What gave you the impression he had the resentment towards the district attorney's office? Because I had asked him on a couple of occasions what was wrong. Dave and some profanity he would use, he would say something about the FBI or Garrison's office or the New Orleans police or, or authority. To me, I always felt he was an anarchist. As a matter of fact, didn't it tell you he was being haunted by the district attorney's office? No, sir. Or harassed by them or, or words to that effect? No, sir. Not that I recall. And in spite of this resentment that he voiced to you personally, is it your testimony you did not even know that he'd been picked up by the district attorney's office? Yes, sir. And you were not curious enough to find out why he was antagonistic toward the district attorney's office? No. And I would like to amplify on that, please. Dave Ferry was the type that talked about so many things. He cited chapter and verse to me on so many occasions because in the very beginning, when I first met him, I would argue and say I knew something different. What I know, it is different. And he would say to go down to the library and pick up the 1947 edition of Rossiter's Human Relations. I don't remember the name. I'm just making it up. For example, Rossiter's Human Relations, second edition. Make sure it's the second edition. And he would say to turn to page 365 and read that. He said that if you don't believe that, you can look into an earlier edition or I can get some other people. And when a man does that, you don't challenge him. I didn't. When a man does that, would that keep you from being intellectual, curious, or otherwise curious as to why he was antagonistic towards the district attorney's office? That, to me, was a small matter in my eyes. And he talked all during the summer months last year of the assassination. He talked before that of curing. I cannot hear you, Mr. Russo. He talked in the summer months of the assassination, which I told you about. He talked about curing cancer. He talked about you name it. He talked about it. 
He knew what there was to know. I felt I tried in the beginning to argue with him, and I was not successful. So I said, well, he was probably right. You name it, he talked about it. I said, you name it, he talked about it. Still, he did not talk about why I was antagonistic toward the district attorney's office. No, sir. Can I elaborate one other remark? The other remark is that I am sure people would say, you know, other people would say that it was a typical Dave, that to me he was a walking encyclopedia and he strangled the conversation. You did not need to ask questions because he filled in all the details. You did not need to say things. He knew it all. And although he was willing to help and interested in other people's affairs, he knew all the answers. So I questioned him. And that was the attitude that I took. And getting back a little bit, back to even some of the other meetings I had or had seen Dave or, or dropped in, he would do all the talking. And that was the way he was. Would you say David Ferrer was inclined to brag? At first, I thought that, but I subsequently changed my mind. To what opinion did you change your mind? Because he cited chapter and verse and most things he could support, most of his contentions. I'm talking about personal deeds and accomplishments as such. Was he inclined to brag? I never did put it in that context. No, sir. Did David Ferry ever make any statement to you to the effect that his plan to kill President Kennedy had succeeded? Had succeeded? That's right. No, sir. After the assassination of President Kennedy, did David Ferry ever at any time mention to you his plan, if one existed, to kill President Kennedy? No, never did. Did you ever ask him any questions about that? No, sir. Could you tell us why? I think I explained it in my last question. Because of the fact that after being around Dave sometime, you knew never to ask questions. He knew the answers. He had already given you the answers once before. But he did not give you an answer as to whether or not his plan had succeeded, did he? I did not ask him the question. Are you telling me it was impossible to ask him questions? No, sir, but you, you got out of the habit of doing it. <laughs> By way of summation, Rousseau, is it your testimony that you were present when Dave Ferrer entered into a plan to kill Kennedy? Yes, sir. The Kennedy was subsequently killed by one of the people who was a party to that plan that you saw Dave Ferrer after the assassination and never saw fit to even mention it to him. Yes, sir. <laughs> now, in the March 1st, 1967 television interview here on Broad Street, you are asked by the reporters, or reporter, I should say, whether you had submitted any tests in the district attorney's office. Is that right? Yes, sir. Have you submitted any tests at that time? Yes. Yes, sir. Have you been hypnotized? Yes, sir. By whom? Dr. Fatter. Were you hypnotized on March 1st, 1967? I don't recall the dates. Were you hypnotized on the same date as you had the television interview on Broad Street? I'm sure I wasn't, but perhaps he could tell you. I don't remember the exact dates. Are you telling us now, Rousseau, that you cannot remember the date you were first hypnotized in the district attorney's office here in New Orleans? 
at this point, the prosecution objected and said there's evidence already entered into the court on the dates about when he was hypnotized, and the judge sustained it. Where were you first hypnotized? In Dr. Nicholas Chetta's office. Was that hypnotism by Dr. Fatta? Yes, sir. And you don't remember the date of that. It would be sometime after the 24th, the next week, during the next week, or a week after that. He could verify that. When did you come here to New Orleans from Baton Rouge? Uh, I came here the Monday after the interview, the Monday after I talked to a member of the district attorney's staff. Rousseau, I'm showing you a 1967 calendar indicating March, the present month on it, and with the help of this calendar, tell us when you came down to New Orleans from Baton Rouge. Is the 24th the interview? Yes. The district attorney's office contacted me on the 25th, and I, I came down Monday morning, which would have been the 27th. When you came down here on Monday morning, the 27th, were you interviewed by the district attorney here in New Orleans by any of his reps? Yes, sir. At that time, were you hypnotized? I don't recall if it was the first day. No, sir. No, the first time I, I do remember what happened. The composite photograph was made up the first day. Now, is it your testimony that you were not hypnotized that first day? Is that right? Yes, sir. I, I remember that composite photograph. Did you come back to this building on the 28th of March? Yes, sir. Where did you go in the building on the 28th? Into the district attorney's office. Did you have any occasion on the 28th to go into the coroner's office? I'm not willing to specifically say what day. Dr. Fatter could tell you. Dr. Chetta could tell you. I want to know whether you can tell me. Can you tell me whether you went to the coroner's office on the 28th of February? I don't recall. Did you go into the coroner's office on the 28th of February, 1967? I might have, and I, I might not have. Were you hypnotized on the 28th of February? I don't recall. Did you come into the district attorney's office in this building on March 1st, 1967? Yes, sir. Were you hypnotized on March 1st, 1967? I cannot say. Now, perhaps you may relate March 1st, 1967 to the television interview. Yes, sir. At the time you gave that television interview on March 1st, had you been hypnotized? The reason I'm trying to shy away from the exact date, because I do not know, because I've been climbing out of the fire escapes, things like that, to, to avoid publicity. And I don't want that much publicity. Everything is a long trend of confusion. <laughs> you say you don't want any publicity? No, sir. At this point, the prosecution objected to what Diamond was asking, and they also made a comment about the smirk on Diamond's face. And... <laughs> To which Diamond responded, I don't know how you're going to remove that from the record. And particularly, what fire escapes have you been climbing out of? There was an objection, and it was sustained. Are you telling us now that you don't know whether you've been hypnotized when you gave the television interview? I do not want to be the exact date. I don't know. If I would say one thing, it might be wrong. How many times have you been hypnotized by uh, the Dr. Fatta? My recollection is three times. When was the last time that you were hypnotized? I'm not sure of the exact date. Were you hypnotized before you came into court here on March 14th of the same day? That's right. Absolutely not. Were you hypnotized yesterday? The, the day before? Yesterday, I said. Absolutely not. Are you under hypnosis right now or not? 
Absolutely not. Uh, referring to March 13th, which is the day before the, this preliminary hearing commenced, will you hypnotize on that day? Referring to March 13th, which is the day before the preliminary hearing commenced, were you hypnotized on that day? I don't think I was. Now, you say you have been hypnotized three times by Dr. Fatta. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And you cannot tell us when any of this hypnosis took place. It occurred between the 24th of February and between the 13th of March. Between the 24th and the 13th? Yes, sir. Well, you were in Baton Rouge on the 24th, is that right? You are absolutely right. Were you hypnotized in Baton Rouge? Absolutely not. On what day did you arrive in New Orleans? From the 24th to the 13th has been a trying ordeal to me, and I'm not willing to say what date it was. What date did you arrive in New Orleans? I arrived on a Monday. That would be the 27th, is that right? Yes, sir. Then why did you say the hypnosis took place between the 24th and the 13th if you did not go here to New Orleans until the 27th? From the 24th, I considered that's when I got involved. That's the only time I ever talked to anyone from the district attorneys. Uh, the day after the interview was the 25th, is that right? Would someone check a calendar, please? If you know that you weren't hypnotized in Baton Rouge, why couldn't you state positively that this took place between the 27th and the 13th if you did not arrive in New Orleans until the 27th? The prosecution would then intervene and say he's arguing with a witness. He's shown him a calendar as to the date, but the judge in this case said, you know, the question is a good one. Can I amplify on that? I, I try and connect things with events going on. And that is the way I try to remember things. And since I've been down in New Orleans and I haven't been at work and I haven't tried to since the 24th was my first involvement, and I consider that the beginning, and I was hoping it would end Tuesday at least for a while until the trial or what, and then it went to Wednesday, and then now it's Thursday, and I've lost track of numbers, days. I'm extremely tired. You have not lost track of the fact that you were in Baton Rouge on the 24th, the 25th, and the 26th of February, have you? I have been reminded of that, yes, sir. And still, you're not willing to pinpoint the dates of this hypnosis any closer to the present date than the February 24th, 1967, when you were in Baton Rouge. I'm not willing to say any dates because I might be wrong about it. I, I'm only telling what I am absolutely sure about. So, in view of the dates given by you, you would say that you have been hypnotized as late as the 13th of March. Is that correct? Highly improbable, but possibly right. That would be by Dr. Fatta in the presence of Dr. Chetta. Yes, sir. In the presence of who? Dr. Chetta. Did all three of these instances take place in the office of the coroner for the parish of Orleans? As I recollect, they did. Do you have any doubt about that? No, but I'm trying to remember exactly. What did Dr. Fatta do to hypnotize you? What was the procedure? I would prefer you ask him. It is his procedure, and I just could not say what exactly. You don't remember what he did at all? I remember a lot of things that was done, but what procedure? The question is, what do you remember he did? He asked me questions. Well, what else? He asked me to try to remember things, try and recall, try and visualize things like that. 
that is how he hypnotized you? No, sir. His technique, I'm not qualified to even talk about. I would prefer he talk about that. I want to know what you saw Dr. Fatter do in the process of hypnotizing you, what you saw with your own eyes. I relaxed. I relaxed. Yes, sir. Were you standing up, sitting down, lying down? I was sitting down. You say you relaxed. What did Dr. Fatter do? He questioned me. He talked to me. About what? About just general idea things. I had done in my past, and he relaxed me first, and then he talked some more, and he asked me. Evidently, he had, not evidently, just what do you remember? All I remember is being asked questions. Now, what instructions did Dr. Fatter give you, if any, in connection with his hypnotism? What do you mean by instructions? You said he told you to relax. Did he give you any other instructions? He talked. No specific instructions that I can recall. None at all? No specific instructions that I can recall. How about general instructions? Well, he talked. What did he say? It's not an instruction thing. He did not order me. That is what I'm trying to clear up. He did not order me. What did he tell you? He talked. Can I be any clearer than that? I don't understand. You remember what he said? Well, he questioned me. In order to make myself clear, do you mean he questioned you after you were under hypnosis? Or in the process of putting you under hypnosis? I had been questioned by the district attorney's office over and over and over, and then this came about, and evidently he asked me, the same questions. While under hypnosis or in the process of putting you under hypnosis? While under hypnosis. Now, what did he tell you and ask you in the process of putting you under hypnosis? We talked. He talked. What did he say? Yeah, nice, soothing, relaxing things. Like what? I don't recall. I, I just felt relaxed. I, I felt like relaxing. When's the last time you saw Dr. Fatter, other than just seeing him walk into the courtroom, if you did? Perhaps four or five or six days ago. I don't recall exactly. It could not have been more recently than that. I saw him in court, other than in the courtroom. No, I don't think. And is it still your testimony you might have been hypnotized by him as late as March 13th? My testimony is that I consider the 24th to the 13th one long stream. Russo was then instructed by the judge to answer the question. May I have a calendar, please? Yeah. I said before the probability that I wasn't, I I don't think so now. I feel that I was hypnotized perhaps in the middle of the week. I'm not sure. I'm not willing to say. How did Mr. Fata bring you out of this hypnosis? When I hit a number, I opened my eyes. Did he tell you that while under hypnosis or while putting you under hypnosis? Evidently, while under hypnosis. You recall? Do you presently recall his telling you that? No, not really. How do you know he told you that? I woke up to the number five. Did you hear number one, number two, number three, and four? I heard number five. That, that is all. I did not hear the first four numbers. Have you ever heard of post-hypnotic suggestion? Yes, sir. What did Dr. Fata tell you to do? after you came out from under the spell of hypnosis. He told me to be very relaxed and to feel, uh, not to feel tired and to come out with a smile on my face. Did he tell you that before hypnosis or while under hypnosis? 
while under hypnosis. You remember him telling you that? Yes. Can you account for you remembering that and not remembering any numbers before? No, I cannot. When you first came down here to New Orleans from Baton Rouge, which according to your testimony was on the 27th of February, 1967, what time did you arrive here? I recall about 9 o'clock in the morning. About 9 in the morning. Yes, sir. Did you have a prearranged appointment with the district attorney or any of his representatives? Well, they asked me if I would be willing to come down, and I said yes. Did you call them, or did they call you? This was arranged in, in Baton Rouge. Did they tell you what time to be in the district attorney's office? Well, he asked me what time. I, I could. I asked what time they wanted me. I, I said, would 9 o'clock be all right? I remember 9. To whom did you speak? I talked to Mr. Chabra, who's on the staff. So he came down to New Orleans and in accordance with this agreement. Is that right? Yes, sir. Now, when you got to New Orleans, did you go directly to the district attorney's office or anyplace else? I don't recall the first day. I, I think I came directly to the office. You can't be sure of that? I, I think I came directly to the office, but I'm not sure. Did you come by yourself to the district attorney's office or with somebody else? By myself. When you came into the district attorney's office, to whom did you report and where? I reported to Mr. Chambre in his office. In his private office? Well, in all the offices. I was in Mr. Chambre's office at first. After you went in and reported to Mr. Chambre, what happened then? He asked me more questions. and uh, Well, was anyone else present in the office at that time? Some of the assistants were. You know who they were? Uh, specifically that particular time? No. Well, how about now? You know, most of the men in the office questioned me. Well, how many men were there? I've been questioned by at least six or seven. I'm talking about on the occasion of your first visit. Uh, two at times, sometimes three. Can you name any of the other gentlemen who were there in the office and questioning you? Mr. Ozer. Was there a man named Lynn Loisel, an investigator for the district attorney's office present at the first meeting? Right. I don't recall him being there. Was it present at any subsequent meeting? I had met in his office. Now, after you went into Chambre's office on the occasion of this first meeting, did the interrogation of you continue there in Mr. Chambre's office, or did you go to another office for the purpose of interrogation? Well, we went to all the offices. I think it began in Mr. Chambre's office, and we ended in several other offices. Were you shown any photographs at that time? Oh, yes, sir. How many? Maybe 50. At that time, were you shown a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald? No, oh, I'm sure I was. Thank you for listening to episode 163 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.